with me a cappella. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him and all my love is due. seated. That's great.
so much men. CNN once carried a story about a 62-year-old man who was rushed to a general hospital in France because he was suffering from stomach pain. And after they got there, his family shared with the physicians that this man had a history of mental illness and he was known to swallow coins. Coins. Well, they x-rayed the man and when the x-ray came back, Uh, Needless to say, the doctors were shocked. Uh, His stomach was filled with 350 coins which this man had swallowed. Uh, They took him to surgery. They performed surgery to remove the mass. But sad to say, 12 days later, the man died of complications. You know, as I read that and thought about it, while most people are not sick... And are not, as far as swallowing coins, they're not swallowing coins on a regular basis. A lot of people are sick when it comes to money and materialism. Uh, greed has grabbed a hold of so many and it grows like a deadly cancer in their life. Paul warned us in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9-10, through 10, "...but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare." And into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Perhaps, if you're honest today, you'd have to admit that you too are sick when it comes to the area of money in your life. If so, I want to give you a biblical prescription for your malady. And to begin with, we're going to go to the Bible and hear another story about a lady and some coins. Uh, This story, of course, is found in two of the books of the Bible, two of the Gospels, uh, both Mark and Luke. But I'm going to ask you to turn, please, to Mark chapter 12 this morning. We're going to look at Mark's account of the story of a lady and some coins. Now, I gave you that listener guide today because I'm going to go through a lot of Scripture and cover a lot of ground, uh, hopefully in a short amount of time. And so you can follow along as I uh, give you Scripture, as I read the Scripture. You should have it there in front of you on one of these green sheets. It looks like this, a listener guide. And there's several out there. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you or behind you. Be sure to grab one of those so you can follow along as we talk today about the subject, Your Money Counts. Your Money Counts. Mark chapter 12, we'll begin reading at verse 41, a familiar story. Uh, I know in our Sunday school class this morning it was even mentioned, uh, this lady and her life. But let's look at it afresh and anew today. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 41, and we'll read to the end of that chapter, a uh, very short section of Scripture. The Bible says in Mark 12, 41, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make quadrants. 
So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, beloved, I want to set the stage about what's going on there that day. Scholars tell us there were 13 trumpet-shaped brass offering receptacles in the court of women in the temple complex. And the court of women was large enough to hold probably 15,000 people. So imagine you have these brass receptacles, 13 of them, many, possibly thousands of people milling about. It's very easy for the Lord Jesus to kind of step back and spend some time doing a little people watching. You ever done any people watching? Gone to a big mall somewhere, gone to Walmart and sat on the bench and just watched people. It's a very interesting experience to say the least. Well, as he's watching that day, many people gave large offerings. But as he's watching, a poor widow comes along and she throws in two mites which make quadrants. Now the mite, or the lepton as it was known, was the smallest copper coin. I have one here today. This is an actual lepton, a lepton, a real one. And so she would have thrown in two of those. That could have possibly, probably not been one of the ones. But this is a genuine lepton, a lepta, a widow's mite. And so too, look how small this. Probably can't even see it back there. It's so small. She gave two of those. Now it's hard for us to figure out today exactly how much this is worth in our money in our day. Ralph Earl writing back in the ni- in 1970s, so the value would have changed from what we have today. But he said the quadrants, the Roman coin, was worth half of the American penny. So half a penny. However, its purchasing power was was much more uh, than our penny. And then I got to studying more, and Daryl Bach has figured that her offering that she gave would have been worth, would have equaled 10 minutes, 10 minutes of labor at the then current minimum wage, which would have been, I think, a denarius. So 10 minutes of minimum wage labor is what this lady gave. So I did the math. I went and I figured up how much is 10 minutes of minimum wage worth today. Minimum wage right now is 7.25. It has not changed. There's talk about it changing. If you take 7.25 divided by 60 minutes, it equals 0.12083333. But to round it off, it's worth 12 cents a minute. You do the math. 12 cents a minute times 10 is what? Boy, we go to math classes. <laughs> Some are afraid to say. 12 cents times 10 is worth $1.20, right? And so I thought about that. It's worth $1.20. Now, for us to do $1.20 today, it would take three coins. So I brought $1.20 with me today. I have a dollar coin and I have two dimes, $1.20. So in today's terms, she would have put in three coins, if you will, in the offering plate. A dollar and twenty cents. So you get the picture. Jesus is watching all these offerings, and that day some wealthy people come and they bring very large offerings. So somebody comes along and they put in a hundred dollars. Somebody else comes along and possibly they put in a thousand dollars. Then somebody very wealthy comes along and they put in two thousand dollars. And then he watches this widow comes along. And she puts in the equivalent to our day, a dollar and twenty cents. 
Now the question is, who gave more? Who gave the most? Well, we're looking at it from a human standpoint. We say, who? The wealthiest person. I mean, even a $50 gift would blow $1.20 out of the water, wouldn't it? Even a crisp $20 bill would make $1.20 pale in comparison. But look at what Jesus said. Look back at the passage of verse 43 and 44. So he calls his disciples to himself and said to them, Now think about it. He's watched many large gifts. He doesn't call the disciples over for those. He sees this widow give two mites. He calls them over and says, Listen, assuredly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who gave to the treasury. Why? For they all put in out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now we learn that Jesus doesn't exactly account like we do. And when he looks at the offering, he sees it a little bit differently than we do. We understand that Jesus saw it's not so much the amount of money that's given as it is the amount of sacrifice that's given. In other words, it's not how much you give to God as much as it's how much you keep for yourself. Daryl Bach went on to say sometimes a minimal gift takes a maximum sacrifice. A minimum gift takes a maximum sacrifice while for others the minimum might not really be much of a gift at all. You see, those wealthy people, they gave large gifts. And Jesus wasn't condemning them necessarily for that. I mean, they were giving, but they still have plenty left. But this poor widow, she comes and she brings her two mites, her dollar and 20 cents, and she gives all of it, all that she had. Now, she must have loved and trusted Jehovah very much. To give everything. I mean, she had two mites, right? She could have kept one and given the other. But she says, no, I'm going to give all. There are so many lessons when you think about this passage in this scripture. Uh, a couple of come to mind. Number one, even the poorest can give. While it may be a small gift in the world's eyes, it can be the largest gift of all in God's eyes. Another thought, the Lord watches what we give. He knows what we give. We're going to pass the plate after today's message. God sees what we give and what we keep. Another thought, we should view things from a heavenly perspective. We like to blow the trumpet and blow horns and celebrate the largest gift. And of course, we're thankful for all that give, but sometimes it's the smallest gift that's the greatest sacrifice. But the lesson I want us all to get today is this, the lesson... Of generosity. The lesson of generosity. If you're suffering from money sickness. If you're suffering from greed. Today. Here's the biblical prescription. Practice generosity. Become a giver. Once there was a Christian. He had a pious look. His, his consecration was complete. Except his pocketbook. He put a nickel on the plate. And then with might and main. He'd sing, when we asunder part, it gives me inward pain. You know, that's the way a lot of people are when it comes to giving. Did you know that? They have pain. It's a pain. We've talked all month about money. We're going to change subjects next week, by the way. We've talked all week, all month about money from different angles, from different areas. And today we're focusing on the subject of generosity and giving. We're going to talk about tithes and offerings. We're going to talk about buildings and budgets. We're going to talk about many things that people usually don't like to talk about. You know what I found though? Those who get upset when you talk about giving 
and generosity and those who complain and murmur about that, you know what I think? They probably are not generous and they don't give. Because folks who give and are generous, they're glad to be encouraged to know that what they're doing is right and good. We've moved the offering today because I want us to realize that it's an act of worship. As that plate is passed, it's an act of worship. As you give, it's an act of worship. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of all that, I want to give you some key principles when it comes to giving. And these are outlined on your handout today. And I want to go through these with you pretty quickly. And I'll give credit where credit is due. Most of this material I'm about to share with you comes from Howard Dayton's book called Your Money Counts. I'd recommend that book to you. Let's talk first of all about the attitude in giving. The attitude in giving. Did you know your attitude when it comes to giving is most important? Listen to this verse in 1 Corinthians 13.3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You'd be better off to keep it. If you don't have love, if you're not motivated by love, if you don't have a proper attitude then you might as well not even give. Why? Because it says it profits nothing. Look at that quote I put there from Howard Dayton. If giving is merely to a church, a ministry, or to a needy person, it is only charity. But if it is given to the Lord, it becomes an act of worship. When the offering plate is being passed at church, we should consciously remind ourselves that we're giving our gifts to the Lord Himself. That's why we moved the offering today. I want you to realize that the offering plate is passed. We've done it so many times. Think about how many times you've been in a church service. If you've been in church your whole life, how many offerings you've seen in Sunday school, in church, in revival meetings, or wherever. It becomes very common, kind of like singing the doxology. We just do it. We don't think about it. We don't realize what we're doing. When the offering plate is passed today, you give that money. You don't give it just to Red Hill Baptist Church or just to the needy or just for missions. You're giving literally that gift to the Lord. Now, as a young boy, I didn't understand that. I wanted to know, we're giving our gifts to God. How did you get the money to God? I really wanted to know that. I thought maybe there was a, I don't know, is there a pipeline? Is there one of those neat things at the bank where you put it in the tube and it shoots up, up like that? Or how does this happen? Little did I realize at that time that what we do is we take and give these gifts to God and God takes those gifts and they're used here to bless others. And we'll talk more about that, boys and girls, in case you're wondering, how do we get this money to God? We'll show you what we do with it in a little bit. But it's, a, it's an act of worship. And so as you, the plate is passed today, give that money not just to Red Hill, not just to the church, not just to the cooperative program. Give it to the Lord. Say, Lord, this is my offering to you. Your attitude is important. God loves a cheerful giver. Second, let's talk about the advantages of giving. The advantages of giving. When we give with the proper attitude, we're blessed probably more than the recipient of the gift. In fact, what does the Bible say in Acts 20.35? It says this, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He said, it is more blessed to do what? To give than to receive. It's a greater blessing to give than it is even to get. We forget that, especially in our society. So I want to give you four benefits to the giver. You have them there in your handout. First of all, an increase in intimacy. An increase in intimacy. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows your treasure. 
If your heart is upon the Lord and the things of God and giving to the Lord, your, your treasure is going to be there. You're going to rejoice in that. You're going to draw closer to the Lord Jesus. Secondly, there's that development of character. Giving makes us more like Jesus. Jesus was so unselfish. Um, think about all that Jesus gave up when He left the splendor of glory and took upon Himself flesh and came and lived as a man among men. Perfect God, perfect man. And Jesus was not a wealthy man. He said at one point, I don't even have a place to lay my head. He gave up so much that we might have eternal life. Then He says, not only am I going to stop there, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to lay it on the cross. I'm going to shed my blood. I'm going to be placed in a tomb. And then I'm going to rise victorious, forever robed in flesh, glorified for you and for me. When we give, we become more like Jesus. It develops our character. 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. Let them do good. They may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And so we develop our character. Thirdly, we make investments for eternity. Investments for eternity. The first bank of heaven, if you will. Look at what it says in Matthew 6.20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Talk about the first bank of heaven. Look at Philippians 4.17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. How's your account in heaven doing, beloved? Are you laying up treasures in heaven? You know, if we get treasures here, we worry about them, don't we? We're scared somebody's going to break in and steal them. We're afraid they're going to burn up in a fire. We're afraid we're going to have moth and dust and rust and all those things. But listen, if you'll go ahead and send treasures to heaven, no worries at all. They're secure. Better than FDIC insured. The bank of heaven. How's your account in heaven? Do you have investments for eternity? And then fourthly, there's an increase in material blessings. An increase in material blessings. Let us read this scripture together. Proverbs 11, 24, 25. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. That doesn't make sense, does it? You keep giving, but more comes. There's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now here's the question, can God trust you with more? Now listen, the Bible never promised that we're going to be uh, healthy and wealthy as believers. That's a false gospel. Believers get sick. Believers die. There are poor believers. The poor you have always with you. But here's some principles and things we understand that if God can trust us with little, then He can trust us with more. Why? Because we become a conduit of blessings to others. As God gives, we take His gifts and we continue to funnel them out to bring honor and glory to Him. Can God trust you with more? Are you being trustworthy of what He's already given you? Are you trustworthy? Worthy with what He's given you. Can God trust you with more? So there are advantages to being a giver. So we've talked about the attitude. 
should be one of love and God's glory and God's honor. The, the advantages, they're wonderful. But then notice next, and here's the scary one for so many, the amount to give. How much should we give? Now every week here we have something called tithes and offerings. Tithes and offerings. T-I-T-H-E, tithes and offerings. Now, what is a tithe? A tithe is a tenth. Ten percent. That's a tithe. An offering would be whatever comes above the tithe. So if someone is a tither, if they're a tither and they give ten percent, listen, you cannot say that I tithe two percent. You cannot say I tithe five percent. You can't say I tithe nine percent. Because a tithe means 10%. If you tithe, you give 10%. If you give tithes and offerings, you give 10% plus something else above the 10%. So if you make $10, you give a dollar. $100? Boy, y'all are slow today. $1,000? $10,000? A hundred thousand dollars. We'll stop there. Now listen, there are those who abuse the tithe today. I want to talk to you just about a couple different ways people abuse the tithe. There are those, I don't know if you're aware of it, that work with all their might to argue the point that the tithe is not for today. They say, oh, the tithe is, is the law, we're under grace, so the tithe is not for today. You should not mention tithing. You should not mention that. You shouldn't be preaching that. My response is this. They're right that we're not under the law, we're under grace. Hallelujah. We're not under the law. But I wonder about those who wage war on the tithe. They wage war on it. From a standpoint of a pattern... You see, we actually read about the tithe before the law was ever given. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. We studied that. We studied Abraham's life. It's Genesis 14, 20. And blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies to your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. He gave him 10%. And so tithing was practiced before the law was ever given. But yes, under the law, they were required to tithe. And by the way, the tithe was actually, when you look at all that they were to give, was much more than 10%. It's because they gave to various other things. I think some of that's covered by our taxes today. But because they were theocracy, and so it's a little bit different, but they gave the 10% under the law, yes. And there are those who say, oh, you can't do that. Then there are those who say, well, you better tithe or else. In other words, they use the tithe in a legalistic way to beat people over the head and really almost get them into fear and bondage that if you don't tithe, you know, you know, watch out. And so they use the tithe to beat people over their head. They rob the tithing and giving of all the joy in the world. It's like paying taxes. How many of y'all say, hallelujah, I get to pay taxes? When the bill comes. No, you, you do that, why? You do it grudgingly, right? And out of necessity. What do you just say to us? Don't give grudgingly and out of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. And so they use the tithe and they beat people. You better tithe or else. That's an abuse of the tithe. But then there's another danger when it comes to the tithe. And that's those who make the tithe the be-all and end-all of their giving. They tithe, they give 10%, and they think they've reached the pinnacle of giving. And and maybe even worse than that, they think, well, now I've given the 10%, so the 90% is mine to do with whatever I want to do with it. 
they forget that actually 100% belongs to the Lord. And the tithe is an acknowledgement of His ownership and His Lordship in our life. And so you see all these abuses of the tithe. So you say, well, preacher, what do we do with the tithe? Do you believe in tithing? Maybe you're asking me that. You're wondering that. Do I believe in tithing? Do I practice tithing? Or do you believe in what some call grace giving? We just give under grace. I believe in both. I practice both. I believe in the tithe and I believe in grace giving. In my devotional time last month, I ran across something that Robert Morgan said that really caught my attention. He said this, he's the pastor. He says, sometimes people ask me if we still have to tithe. Is it a divine requirement? He said, well, in the Mosaic law, tithing was commanded as part of the Jewish national life. But Abraham tithed before the law. And the New Testament simply tells us to give as God has prospered us. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Here's what he says. He says, I don't believe the tithe is a law to obey, but a pattern to follow. He went on to share an amazing story. Richard Wormbrand. Maybe you have heard that name before. He suffered in various communist prisons because of his faith in Christ. The principle of tithing was so internalized in his heart that when he received a slice of bread a week and dirty soup every day, he faithfully tithed from it. Every tenth day he gave his soup to a weaker brother and every tenth week he took his slice of bread and gave it to a fellow prisoner in Jesus' name. Now here's what I believe about the tithe, in case you're curious. I believe the tithe is a starting point of giving. Randy Alcorn likens it to training wheels on a bicycle. You know, when you first get your bicycle and you haven't ridden a bicycle before, you have those training wheels. And you start out teetering and tottering with thankfully the wheels there to catch it, the wheels there to catch you. But there comes a day where mom or dad takes the training wheels off the bike and you begin to ride. Maybe you're a little wobbly at first, but the next thing you know, you're tearing around on your bike until one day you fall at church and break your arm. I mean, just... (laughs) The tithe is the starting point of giving. And here's what I'm saying, beloved. If under the law they were required to give 10%, how can we give less under grace? That's where grace giving comes in. In other words, tithe is the minimum. We should grow in our giving. The tithe is the beginning of the journey, not the destination. Our desire as a family is to grow in our giving every single year. I want to give more in 2013 than I did in 2012. I want to give more in 2014 than I do in 2013. Growing in our giving. So you say, well, preacher, how much should I give? That's between you and God. Pray about it. Go to Him and say, Lord, what do you want us to give? What do you want our family to give? For some, He might say 10% right now. Others, it might be 15 11, 12, 13, 14. Some might could give 20%. Some are maybe so blessed you could give 25%. But go and pray. And say, Lord, what would you have me to give? I believe the pattern of tithing is a starting point. You give at least 10% of your income to the Lord's work. Now here's an interesting thought. Do you know how much the average American Christian gives today to support their churches? and spiritual leaders, and mission work, and the needy. Are you ready for this? 
That's all they give. That's all. Now, as you seek God's will concerning what to give, don't forget the pattern of giving. Let's fly through the end of this. Let's look at that verse that Robert Morgan mentioned, 1 Corinthians 16.2. I think I have it printed there for you, don't I? I want to give you, let's read the verse. On that first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Howard Dayton calls this the Paul's pod of peas. That's a tongue twister, by the way. Paul's pod of peas. Look at that verse with me. First of all, giving should be personal. Personal. Look at the verse. On the first day of the week, let each one of you. Our giving should be personal. The idea is not that you come and you participate in church and you worship and you say, well, somebody else will give. No, God wants you to give. Each one of you give. Notice next, giving should be periodic. On the first day of the week. What day is today? First day of the week. Now, I usually give once a month because we're paid once a month. And so we do uh, once a month as far as our regular tithe and offering and then whatever else. But I've I got to think about that and pray about it. I mean, I did change that. Maybe I need that weekly reminder. I need to divide it up every week give as an act of worship. It should be periodic. Thirdly, giving should be a, a private deposit. Notice it says lay something aside. Lay something aside. You make the effort to put this aside. Say, this is for God's work and God's glory. Fourth, giving should be premeditated. Premeditated. Or I, I would put there planned even. Notice what it says, laying aside, laying something aside, storing up. Not just grabbing a bill. Oh, the offering. Let's see, what have I got in my wallet? Okay, let's see. Ooh, that's a 20. I'm not giving that. There's a 10. Oh, there's a 5. I'll give the 5. <laughs> that's not the idea. If you're at home practicing to fold a $1 bill until it looks like a $100 bill, something's wrong in your life. You need to premeditate and plan and pray and say, God, what do you want me to give this week when it comes to your work? Consider the verse 2 Corinthians 9-7. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. When the offering plate goes around, it shouldn't be, oh, here it comes again. Like a dentist appointment or tax time or whatever. It should be, thank you, Father, I can participate. But there's another thing I want to talk to you about real quickly here. Very personal. And this is geared not to our guests today, but to those who call this church their home church. Why should you give to Red Hill Baptist Church? I think that's a valid question. I think it's an important question we need to consider. Out of all that you could give to today, why should you give here? I sat down and began making a list. And I'll be honest with you, some of this is very spiritual. And some of it's very self-centered. But it's the reality. So I'm going to give it to you as I wrote it down. Number one, you're here by God's appointment. God placed you here. God put you here. You know, we have people that come and they're guests and maybe God leads them here and they join and we rejoice. And then there are others who come and God leads them somewhere else and they join there and we rejoice either way. We want them to be where God wants them to be. And if you've been visiting and you've been a guest for many months or maybe years and you've never joined, why aren't you a member? Become a member. But listen, God led you here. Secondly, you covenanted, you covenanted to give. Now, church covenant talks about supporting the work of God. Third, you're ministered to personally. You receive ministry as a result of our church family. Your family is ministered to. 
Your community is ministered to. I mean, this impacts you personally. Here's another interesting thing. You have a say under the Lordship of Christ as to where the money goes. As a member, adult member, you get to vote on the budget. You get to see it. You get to ask questions. You get to be a part of that process. You send a gift to Billy Graham. And, and nothing against Billy Graham in this ministry. I've sent gifts myself. They don't ask me how to spend that money, really. I mean, I could designate it, really, but I don't get that much of a say. I give the gift. But here, I'm a part of the process. I get to vote on the budget. I get to see where it goes. I get the report. I get to look and see exactly what are we doing with the money. Which brings to this. You help oversee the money used here. Accountability. There's no secrets here. If you want to see the budget, if you want to see a financial statement, we won't show you individual donors, of course. That's between them and the Lord. I don't know what you give either. I know what I give. But if you want to see the records as far as our finances, they're open. You come and you say, as a member, I'd like to see a financial statement. Accountability. The next point I thought about is your giving is simplified. Your giving is simplified. You don't have to figure out, well, do I give to this mission and give to this and this, this. I'm going to show you in a little bit how when you give here, you give to unbelievable amount of ministry. Next, you get to be involved in the ministry locally. You get to be involved in the ministry. Not only are you giving to the ministry, you get to be involved in doing the ministry that the money is financing. Vacation Bible school, you get to be a part of that. Sunday school, you get to work in that. See how the money flows and it blesses your life. Next, you get to enjoy the blessings of your giving. Some of you right now are cold. Some of you are comfortable. Some of you are enjoying that cushion you're sitting on. Some of your backs are hurting or whatever. But imagine if we met under a mud, uh, in a mud hut somewhere or under a tree somewhere. You get to enjoy the beauty of this building, the carpet, the, the air conditioning or heat, whether it's cold or hot, sorry. Uh, you get to enjoy it. You get to be blessed by that. You need to go to the restroom. We have restrooms here. If you need to get a drink of water, we have a drink of water here. You get the idea. You get blessed personally by the ministry. And then pull this sheet down. I put one of these in your pew. You get to be involved in a ministry that reaches around the world. This is a. How can I explain this to you? Well, just show it to you. I got a big version of it here, and you've got the little version. Here you are. You're giving in the offering plate. The first place it goes is our local church, and there are some ministries and represent some of our ministries. Then we send a portion. You voted on it. We send a portion up to the cooperative program to our state convention. Now, not that's Tennessee, isn't it? Not, not Tennessee, but North Carolina. And, and we do ministries at a state. Then we take some of that money. And I go and I go to the state convention and messengers go and we vote and say, we're going to send that to the Southern Baptist Convention. And then they spread the money. And that goes to the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board and seminaries and, and all these different ministries. And all that begins when you put your money in the plate here today. Every time you give an undesignated, you give a tithe and offering here and it's undesignated. You put tithes and offerings. A portion of that goes literally to reach the world with the gospel. See how it says it simplifies your giving to realize you're touching the world with the gospel. One more thought. You get to lay up treasures in heaven. We've already talked about that. But how awesome is it? How, how awesome is it? You can make a deposit at the bank of heaven in just a few minutes by putting a gift in that offering plate. Now they've made a lot of progress. I can take my iPhone and I can take a picture of my check and deposit it at BB&T. 
Right now, for the next little while, I can drive down to Ansonville and deposit a check in BB&T, and then I'll have to go to Wadesboro after that. But how easy could it be? How much easy could it be? I can deposit money in the bank of heaven, my account today, as I joyfully, cheerfully give a gift to the Lord and His work. And I get to lay up treasures in heaven. No moth, no rust, no corruption, no thieves to break in and steal. And God is glorified. Beloved, your money counts. That widow's offering... I want to talk to that widow, don't you? Look her up when we get to heaven. Now, she didn't get to heaven because of giving two mites. I trust she knew Jehovah by faith, but I'd like to look her up and say, hey, by the way, how did God provide for you? I mean, Jesus commended her offering. Don't you think she didn't go hungry? I'd love to know the rest of the story, wouldn't you? Do you know her, her offering still blessing? Now, those who gave thousands or hundreds that day, I don't know who they are. You don't either. But that widow with just two mites, dollar twenty, still blessing folks today. Dr. George W. Truer, the pastor, was entertained one time in the home of a wealthy oilman in Texas. And after dinner, this this wealthy oilman he took Dr. Truer up on the roof of his house and he. He showed him huge fields of oil derricks. And here's what he said, Dr. Truett, that's all mine. It's all mine. I came to this country 25 years ago penniless, and now I own everything as far as you can see in that direction. Then he turned in the opposite direction. And in the opposite direction were waving fields of grain. And again he said, it's all mine. I own everything you can see in that direction. One final time he turned, or next he turned to the east. And there were huge fields with cattle. And he said again, it's all mine. Everything as far as you can see in the direction is mine. And one final time he turned to the west. And he pointed to a great virgin forest and said again, it's all mine. 25 years ago I was penniless, but I worked hard and saved. And today I own everything as far as you can see in this direction, in that direction, in that direction, in that direction. It's all mine. And he paused for a moment. And waited for Dr. Truett to respond and praise him. But praise didn't come. Instead, Dr. Truett laid his hand lovingly on the oil man's shoulder. And he pointed upward. And he said, my friend, how much do you own in that direction? And the man dropped his head in shame and said, I never thought of that. You can go home today and look around at all that's yours and all that you have. But would you take a moment and look up? How much do you own in that direction? How much? On the back of your bulletin, and this is the closing of our month-long stewardship emphasis, in the back of your listener guide, there's a title deed. And if God were to lead you, you can fill that out. Where basically you say, God, it's all yours, I give it all to you. You say, that seems kind of foolish. No, that's a practical way to express to the Lord your desire to give it all. I say, Lord, everything that's in mine, I understand I'm a steward. And I want to manage it. And if God were to lead you, you can place that somewhere in your Bible or somewhere remind yourself on a weekly basis. It's all His. 
I'm his money manager. I'm a steward. It's required a steward I'll be found faithful. How much do you own in that direction? We're going to pray. Here's what we're going to do. The altar is open today. Maybe you want to come and you want to pray. We're going to be receiving the offering. Ms. Catherine's playing, I think, an offertory for us. That's our invitation time as we receive the offering. Many of you go ahead and get set to come. We're going to receive that offering. And as you give today, I want you to remember, this is not just something we do. This is an act of worship. And as we receive it today, you give as God guides you. The altar's up. Come and pray. Maybe you want to come and lay that on the altar and say, Lord, I'm yours. Everything I have is yours. I bring you honor and glory. I'm going to pray. We're going to receive the offering. Father, I've been challenged today from your word. And I pray that your word has challenged others here. I pray if someone here does not even know Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray today, during this offering time, they would come to this altar and we could put them with somebody who loves them and loves the Lord and lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I pray for this offering. Father, may we see it for what it is. It's an act of worship. It's an acknowledgement of your lordship in our life. There may be some today that are struggling and really wrestling with you about becoming a tither, about becoming a giver. Father, I pray your will be done in their lives. Thank you for the part you allow us to play in reaching our world with the gospel, putting a deposit into the bank of heaven right here from Red Hill Baptist Church. We love you and we acknowledge your lordship and your sovereignty over us. You own everything. We own nothing. But you've given us all things richly to enjoy. So bless this offering. Bless the gifts. Bless the giver. Whether in man's eyes they're great or large, we know that you're the one that sees the heart. Your will be done, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.
Let's sing it like we mean it, the doxology. Would you stand? Let's sing it. <laughs>